spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, April 3rd, we are studying John chapter 18, verses 15 to 27. In today's text, as Jesus begins his trial before the high priest, Peter begins his own trial before the onlookers within the high priest's courtyard. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Charles St. Ange. Pastor St. Ange serves through the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. He is a missionary pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Pastor St. Ange, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be back with you. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do there in Quebec, Pastor. What, what's going on these days? Well, our congregation is a, a member of the SELC district, which is one of our two non-geographic districts in the Missouri Synod. It's been part of the Missouri Synod for about 90 years. Um, at this point in time, though, for the, the last eight years that I've been here, and even for a couple of my predecessors, we've realized that as the only conf established confessional Lutheran church in the city of Montreal, which is a city of about four and a half million people, um, we, we have sort of a... a an exciting burden placed on us by the Lord to bring the gospel to a city that is largely secular or non-Christian religion. So where we're located in Park Extension, which is right in the heart of Montreal Island, um, we have about 25,000 immigrants, most of whom are from Southeast Asia. And so most of our work, since the, the church is right there in the midst of these people, is reaching out to Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims with the gospel. And we do that through uh, English classes, open houses. Um, we do uh, various fellowship activities. We have a brand new sign that a donor provided for us that has been really effective in reaching people in different languages. And as a result of that, we have had a number of people, mostly from the Sikh religion, who have joined the body of Christ through baptism and through confirmation and are now part of our worshiping fellowship. So that's our mission here in Montreal. And most of that we do in English. There's a, a French Lutheran Church Canada congregation uh, that uses our buildings on Sunday morning. Um, and so that's that's our mission. Fantastic. God be praised for the work that he is doing there in Quebec at your congregation. Pastor St. Ange, we get to talk about John chapter 18 today, which is the early part of the Passion of our Lord, according to St. John. Help us with some context within the gospel. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text for today? Well, as in all of the gospels, um, each of them are focused very, very laser-like on the crucifixion of Jesus, on his passion. Um, it, it's not an accident. It's not like somehow we get to the end of Jesus's earthly life and the gospel writers are like, oh, and then an unfortunate thing happened and Jesus died. Um, that, that's a current view uh, in, out there in the world right now that people, um, even some Christians think, well, you know, Jesus was great. It's just too bad that he, that he died. Um, each of the gospels want to carry you to the cross so that when you finally arrive at Jesus's arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, you have, having read through the previous chapters, context. 
you know why Jesus has ended up here. Um, and in John's gospel, the reason why the trial happens is even clearer um, than it might be in the other three, not because the other three aren't clear about the reason for Jesus's death, but because possibly uh, John's gospel is written at a time when there can be more name dropping. And some of the people um, whose names might have been hidden in the other uh, by the other three writers, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, um, can be can be dropped without threatening them or their families too too much. So an example of that would be John eleven, which is one of the two precursor chapters to the um, to the Last Supper, and in John chapter eleven, which we will hear in the three year lectionary in a couple of Sundays, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, and John, as the gospel writer, makes very clear that it's this event, maybe more than anything else, that seals the um, animosity of the Jewish leaders against him. So while there's a great number of Jewish people who come to believe that he is indeed the Jewish Christ, the Messiah, we have these Pharisees that run back to the Sanhedrin and say, um, people are believing in this guy. He, he just raised someone from the dead. And that's the point where we have that, that wonderful prophecy uh, from the high priest who says, you know, nothing at all. Is it not more expedient that one man die um, than that the entire nation perish? And so in John's gospel, in, in the back of your mind, you have this sense of a battle of life and death, that here is God in God's son, trying to bring life to the world, uh, literally in the case of raising Lazarus, and yet there is this cadre of humans who really are only focused on death. Um, they want Lazarus to die, because if Lazarus is dead, you lose a big piece of evidence. Um, they need Jesus to die. And they hope that in, in compounding death upon death, they can make what they think of as a problem disappear. But for the rest of us who are reading this, we are meant to be kind of just holding our, our head in our hands going, how could, how could you do this? And I think that sets up today's reading, because today's reading that we're going to talk about really does make each of us realize we are also in some ways complicit in what happened. So before we get really excited about saying, well, I would never have, I would never have participated in this, um, we have Peter, uh, the great disciple of Jesus, and seeing how he handles what's happening. Well, I, I'm glad you you set it up that way because that was going to be my question. Is so if there's this battle of life and death, then how do the disciples fit into that battle? We've seen, you know, for several chapters previous now, Jesus has been teaching them in the upper room on Monday, Thursday, and now he's going to his passion. So how do they fit in? I think that is going to be a, a question that we will see answered here in John chapter 18. One thing in terms of thinking about the synoptics and John's account here, I think in all the synoptic gospels. They take Peter's, and I often refer to it as his trial, his his temptation. They put it all together, boom, 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 one, two, three denials right after the other. John splits it up, as we will see. You know, Jesus' trial is in the middle of it. Is there any, uh, is that, what, what effect does that have, I guess? Is there any significance to that that you see? Well, I think one of the significant things is it really draws the the contrast even more between what Jesus is saying before the high priest. Um, and I, without getting too much away, it's a short text and we'll be getting to it. But Jesus is very clear about who he is. He says it's always been out in the open. He has never hid anything from anyone. 
he is he has never done anything wrong. Meanwhile, book ending that that encounter is is Peter, who's doing quite the opposite. Um, and that is a, a constant theme in John's gospel of Jesus simultaneously being very clear about who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Um, I am, period. I am the Lord come into the world. And yet at the same time, it's so hard for, for humans to, to have that same level of honesty. Um, and people, you know, question Jesus, say, how come you never tell us who you are? Even though he's been saying that all along. Or my one of my favorites is um, frequently in John's gospel, uh, people complain that Jesus isn't performing any signs. And they keep saying, well, what sign will you do to demonstrate the truth of your words? Until we get near the end of the gospel and the Pharisees run to each other and say, this man is performing too many signs. So <laughs> there's, there's this uh, real duplicity on the part of humanity that we just, um, apart from the work of God, we will just not see where to find life and where to find a gracious Lord. Um, no matter what God does, it's either too little or too much. Let's go ahead then and look at this text. We're beginning today at John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. That's our text for today. That is John 18, verses 15 to 27. Pastor St. Ange, as our text begins, we've got Simon Peter following Jesus. He's being led to Annas, as we learned previously in the last text. But in addition to Simon Peter, there is another disciple here, one who is unnamed. He simply is another disciple, someone who's known to the high priest. Who, who might this be? Well, that's, that's a really important question. Um, there are people that have studied John who, of course, are, are trying to figure out who is the John that's author of this gospel, because John was a very common name, um, who noticed that throughout the gospel, there is a character who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, which 
is not meaning he's the only one that thinks that Jesus loves him or he's the only one he believes that Jesus loves. It's that he doesn't need any more identity than that. And so we've talked about the importance of identity in John's gospel, Jesus's seven I am statements um, and knowing who you are in relationship to God. Um, that goes back to the prologue. But here um, we have just an anonymous disciple. Now he doesn't say it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's just another disciple known to the high priest. But what this does seem to do is indicate that there is in the circle of the disciples some fairly high-placed individuals, people that are, as the text says, known to the high priest, whether that means known as a, a colleague, another priestly figure, known as a member of the household, uh, we don't know. But it leads to all sorts of speculation. Who, who might this person be? And is this the disciple whom Jesus loved? Right? right? So if this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, then is this another piece of evidence of who this gospel writer is? That this would be somebody who is known to the high priest or the high priest's household. Now, there was a tradition in the early church that whenever you had a, a leader in the church, Clement of Rome, um, or Linus, one of the first leaders of the church in Rome, um, and you saw that same name in the New Testament, people would draw the connection and say, oh, uh, this Clement must also be the other Clement, or this Linus mentioned here by Paul must also be the Linus that ended up serving our church. In the same way, knowing that this is the gospel according to John, and that John that is the author is probably the disciple whom Jesus loved, and here we have this other disciple known to the high priest. People have looked at Acts chapter 4, verse 6, which lists some of the priests in the high priestly household and sees the name John listed as one of the people in that household and have wondered perhaps if this is the same John. Now, other scholars have said, let's let's be let's be um Let's be honest with each other here that we do have this tradition of just randomly finding names in the New Testament that seem to fit and saying, oh, that must be the same one. However, it does seem to indicate that the writer of the Gospel of John may not necessarily be the John of John and James that we're always, you know, uh, seeing come up in the, in the Gospels, that it might be this other John and somebody who's known to the high priest's household. And that would have given him some knowledge of, of literature, some ability to write in Greek, um, some ability to know the ins and outs of what was happening with the Sanhedrin, knowledge of who Nicodemus was, um, and it might have let him um, write more detail into his gospel that the synoptics, who may not have had that connection um, with the Jewish leadership, may not have been able to do. So I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm following you here because I don't know that I've heard this this one before. Okay. So you're 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 saying that there there are there are those who who suggest that the John who is mentioned in Acts four verse six who's mentioned and this is Acts four verse six you've got Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were a part of the high priestly family. There have there have been some that have suggested that that John, not the John the apostle brother of James son of Zebedee. That the John in, in Acts four six was the author of this gospel, correct? Uh, yes, huh. 
And um, Richard Bauckham. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> well, let me, I'm going to give my, uh, I'm going to give my little spiel for, for Richard Bauckham, who is a, a professor of uh, early church history, has written an excellent, excellent book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, um, where he really dives into John's gospel and makes the case that it's one of the most accurate um, gospels in terms, of, in terms of detail. Not that the other three aren't accurate, but it's that John provides so much detail of encounters names, um, relationships, the whole um, context of Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha, which which is alluded to in the other Gospels, but in John, it's front and center, um, and has suggested that since we have this disciple whom Jesus loved, who's often mentioned around the same time and in the same places as John of John and James, that perhaps the John of John and James is not the author. Um, and that this is a, someone who comes from the high priestly household, who has contacts in Jerusalem, who's able to get Peter in and out of this courtyard, and goes on to write the three epistles and, and even Revelation, because we do know that Revelation is often, um, the authorship is often given to John the Elder, um, which is a strange title to give to somebody who um, you would think would be called John the Apostle. Um so that's that's a theory Richard Bauckham I, I, has kind of persuaded me. It, and the more I think about it, the more it really enlightens all of the John corpus, John, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation as having a single authorship um, and being written by a disciple who is not one of the 12, but, but potentially like Luke, was one of the followers of Jesus who was there and saw a lot of these events. Hmm. I don't know if you're going to convince me so quickly, as Paul would say. No, no. So, <laughs> okay, but all right. So the I I I do think one thing though that you you said stands out in this text that this other disciple, who I mean, it's you get a lot of that eyewitness testimony within this text, especially like in verse 26. I know that that's jumping forward a little bit from where we are, but just the the fact that you you find out that one of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked like that just yes. has that, that eyewitness flavor to it. And that's, that's true throughout this text. I mean, not only in chapter 18, but throughout the gospel that you are hearing from someone who was, who was right there. I still, I still find it compelling that that's St. John, the, the apostle, the evangelist as, as we've been saying all along, but I, uh -oh, I know there I'm are sorry. other thoughts out. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, I know, I know there are other, there are other thoughts about who the author of this gospel is. I just, I have never been persuaded to see anyone other than that being St. John, the brother of James, son of Zebedee, the, the apostle, you know, again, whom Jesus loved as he calls himself here. But I, I, I mean, I think I've heard some people try to even put like Lazarus as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, I just, I've never been, I've never been persuaded toward that before, but I, I had not heard that one before. It's, it's intriguing. Again, I'm not sure that I'm persuaded yet. So, but well, I think maybe the most important thing for both of us to say at this point is in many ways, it doesn't matter all that much who the human author is. Um, I mean, right. this is a text that's given to us by the spirit and, and that's, what's really important. Do we believe that these words in this text have been given to us by God, no matter who it was given through? Um, and the fact and that the early church identified all four of these gospels and you was using them all around the Mediterranean, and they all acknowledged that this was an accurate representation 
um, given from God of, of what Jesus did. I think that's what's really the most important. It's fun to speculate about the other things, but, but the most important bedrock is that this is God's word to us. Yes, from from an eyewitness who was there, and, yeah. and as you said, in, inspired by the Spirit, and and as you pointed out, as you were talking about that, the author of the gospel is content to be called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is not interested in having his name out there, but is is happy to be known as one who is loved by Jesus. That's that is good for him, and so yeah, if we can't necessarily attach the the human authorship with certainty, that's okay. Again, I'm I'm still pretty convinced it's John the Apostle, but. That's that's all right. So we've got we've got these two, uh, Simon Peter and this other disciple. They go into the court of the high priest, and access is granted because of the connections of this other disciple. Now, then the the account begins to focus in on Peter and his trial. And again, it's split up into two, so we'll take it in that order. But but get us started. How does the way that John's gospel mm-hmm. record this trial of Saint Peter? How, how do we see some of the, the nuances? What are some things we should pick up from John's gospel that maybe stand out a little bit differently than the synoptics? Well, as you mentioned before, we have this sort of uh, breaking up of the, the trial with the high priest questioning Jesus. And of course, it's worth pointing out that the high priest here is Annas, not the one who is officially the high priest, Caiaphas. But both times... Um, that we go to the account of what's happening between Simon Peter and the people around the fire. It begins by identifying him as Simon Peter and then drops the Simon. And I think that's really interesting that they keep referring to him as the rock. (laughs) And so the contrast being shown here between what Jesus calls Peter and his actions. Um, it's, it's almost a study in simultaneously saint and sinner, that what makes Peter special is not what he does or says. It's that Jesus has given him a name. Um, and, and now we're going to see over the course of, of several chapters in John how Peter ends up living up to that name, not from his own strength, but from what God does within him. And then even into the book of Acts. Same thing happens in verse 25. So when we go back, we see now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. But after that, he's just referred to as Peter. He could just refer to him as Simon, but it doesn't. It chooses to refer to him as his title, the rock. And and look at what the rock is doing. So take us into what the rock is doing yeah. here. How, how, does, how does John record this, at least in the first section? Let's get started there. Right. So we have a a lot of place markers, right? We know that the, we can sort of see there's a courtyard. um, The high priest is there. uh, Peter's staying outside the door. The disciple brings him in. And there's a servant girl who brings Peter in and says to him, not haven't I seen you with this man, which is how we hear uh, usually the temptation in, in the synoptics has to do with Peter hanging around with Jesus. But here's, it's an identity question. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? So instead of being asked, you know, haven't I seen you with Jesus, to which the answer would be no, you haven't. Here, Peter is forced to give an I am statement. He could either, like Jesus, say I am, or do like he does and says I am not. 
And that's the same thing that will happen later. Um, when we jump to 25, 26, and 27, both times, uh, or the first time Peter says, I am not, and in verse 27, it says simply that Peter denied it. So um, it's, it's a nuanced difference, but given John's insistence on talking about identity, Jesus is the word, he's the word made flesh. Um, John says, I am a witness, John the Baptist, to this Jesus. Um, this coming Sunday in the three-year lectionary, we'll have Jesus and the man born blind, where we have this whole conversation about who do, who do you think Jesus is? Who does the blind man think or the cured man think Jesus is? Who do the Pharisees think Jesus is? Until finally we get to the end where the man who's cured says, you know, I believe that you are the Christ. And the, the angry uh, Jewish leader standing around just deny it and say, no, you are not. So now Peter finds himself with that latter camp. He is the one who is given the opportunity three times to say, I am, and he chooses not to. Nonetheless, he still has his title, Peter. Um, and so uh, if it's a mystery novel, you're going to wonder how this, how this resolves itself. How do, we, how do we deal with um, the one who's been called out to be a, a bedrock foundation for the faith, um, deny who he is, and then somehow will he re-identify, or is this the end of Peter? Now, we've heard the story so many times, we know what happens. But sometimes it's good just to read these things and say, what, what if I'd never read this before? And I didn't know what was going to happen. The question you would be asking was, "What's going to happen to Peter?" Yeah, yeah, no, and that, that's a that's a really good point. As we are reading within the narrative, there's that tension: what will happen to Peter, this one who has declared boldly that he will stay with Jesus? What will happen to him? That is again a question we know the answer to, but we're going to let that tension kind of hang and keep that in mind as we consider this text for ourselves. We're going to pick up more of this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Charles St. Ange this morning about John 18. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, April 3rd. We're studying John chapter 18, verses 15 to 27 with Pastor Charles St. Ange. He serves through the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, as a missionary pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Pastor St. Ange, prior to the break, we were talking about the way that Peter denies Jesus here. And as you pointed out, it's worded differently than we hear in the synoptics. And you have that, that wonderful contrast with the way Jesus says, I am, so often Peter says, I am not. And he says, I am not to the, the fact that he is one of this man's, one of Jesus' disciples. You brought up the, the text from John 9 
about the man born blind. And I do think that's a, a, a contrast worth looking at because as, as you said, we've got a question of identity within the gospel of John, not only who is Jesus, but who are you in relation to him? And it's quite striking within the the trial that that man born blind receives there from the, the Pharisees and scribes, they actually say to him, you are his disciple. So they, yes. they say to him, you are his disciple. Now you know, we see in that text, he, he kind of, he is still gaining his sight at that point, but he does not deny that like Peter does. And so it, it's quite, it's quite something here in, in John 18 to see how, how Peter, again, one who, who just a few chapters ago said that that he would not fall away and would continue to follow Jesus and and in fact has followed Jesus up to this point now is suddenly denying Jesus in this way then again this is striking that's not just about who Jesus is but it's about who Peter is has as his disciple uh, take us into more of that i mean it's just a it's a very intriguing topic i think it has quite a bit of application for us as christians and what it means for us to follow Jesus and to to confess him within our lives yeah, so if we go back to John 13, um, which is the setup for this particular uh, temptation of Jesus, Simon Peter says to the Lord, Lord, where are you going? Which is a frequent question in John. Everybody wants to know where people are going. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And we usually read that as an obstacle. Um Peter could follow him, but he's being restrained from following him. But you could also read it as, Peter, you yourself, you are not, you can't follow me right now. Um, and so if you read it that way, it's not that there's an obstacle external to Peter that's stopping him from following Jesus. It's Peter himself. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So in some ways, it's sort of long gospel. Um, there's, there's a problem that needs to be solved first, but it will be solved graciously in the end. And Peter seems to reflect that because he says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? So there's the question. What's, why can't I follow you now? And to be a follower, a mathetes in Greek, right, is to be a disciple. <laughs> That's what a disciple is. It's a follower. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So if we take that in the vein of, it's not that Peter can't follow him because of an external situation, but there's an internal situation that has to be resolved. Peter doesn't know who he is. And until you know who you are, you really aren't able to follow Jesus. And this is like a bedrock, foundational Lutheran teaching that we are always concerned that other Christian expressions of faith get wrong, that we want to urge and teach people to follow Jesus, to do the things Jesus wants them to do, um, and to act the way Jesus wants them to act. And then in that doing, they will discover that they are who they are. But in fact, Jesus is teaching pretty clearly that that will not work. Until you know who you are, you cannot follow. You cannot um, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You cannot live the life that Jesus wants you to live. And so that the obstacle in Peter's way of following Jesus is not 
being able to say, I am his. Does that track? I think that's really, really critical here. Um, it's, it's really the identity question. Do you know that you are God's child? Do you know you've been baptized? Do you know you've been claimed in the blood of Jesus? If, you, if that doesn't come first, how can you then say to somebody, oh, and here's, here's the kind of behavior that Jesus expects of you? I think so. I mean, because I, I can't, not to, I don't want to always go back to John 9, but I think that's what you see from, from John 9 that as, as that chapter progresses. Do you know that you were blind and the only way that you see is through Christ? With, with Peter, do you, do you know that you are his? You know, thinking back all the way to, to John 1, what does it mean to be a, a child of God? Right. One who's been born not of the, the will of man or the will of flesh, but of the, the will of God. Right. Only when you know that you are his child by his grace, that you are, to use the, the way the author speaks, you are one of the ones Jesus loves, only then can you can you truly confess. And and without that relationship to Jesus rightly established, it, it won't fall into place. <laughs> Just as much as, as without knowing who Jesus is himself, it won't fall into place. It, both both things are a part of this confession as, as Christians and the, the Christian belief. And I, I do think you see Peter struggling with that in the, in the moments you meet him in John's gospel, particularly earlier in chapter 13, where, where Peter's just not sure what to make of Jesus washing his feet and what that, whether he needs that or not, and the way that he relates to Jesus there. So I, I do think that that is, that is important. So, so talk more about then how that, that comes to us and the way that we would, we would find our identity with Jesus correctly. How, how does that happen for us? I mean, this, this is the whole importance of the proclamation of the good news or the gospel, um, that as, as a missionary, as somebody working in a very post-Christian culture, um, I run into a lot of people who are lapsed Catholics, former Roman Catholics, um, and for them, Christianity is uh, a set of, of morals and ethics. It's a, a pattern of behavior and what's what's made Christianity uh, unattractive to them is that the leaders, many of the leaders who are espousing this moral and ethical code, have so utterly failed to keep it themselves. And so, <laughs> it's it's a hard sell um, when you're dealing with um, priest scandals. We have the residential school scandal here in Canada. Um, all sorts of ways in which Christians are have in the past said do as I do, don't do as I say, don't do as I do. It's, it's left Christianity with a bad taste in people's mouths. Now, when I come and I start talking to people about Christianity being first and foremost, finding a God of grace and mercy. In fact, our theme for this Lent is this is love. Um, and tracking through each of the gospel readings, we're looking at how does God teach you to find him as a God of grace and love? whether it be being lifted up on a cross, whether it be in, in encountering people and their abandonment with the Samaritan woman at the well, whether it be coming to people with uh, you know horrible physical ailments, being born blind, or whether it comes to people who are dead, which is not just Lazarus, it's all of us. Um, what must come first is faith. And we don't preach faith, we preach the gospel which creates faith. And only then... For those who are, unlike Peter, able to say, are you this man's disciple and say, I am, can you then talk about, well, what does that mean now for what we say and what we do and how we act? Um, 
putting the cart before the horse just never works. It's it's why we I think sometimes in Christian countries or places where there's a, a strong minority or even a majority of Christians, people are frustrated with the behavior of non-Christians around them. So, well, there has to be some way of making them act Christian. It's like, well, there's only one way that I know of, and that's for them to understand who they are in Christ until that happens. Um, you can keep telling them how to behave. It's just not going to change. So Peter has to walk through this valley of death. He has to understand that the obstacle to following Jesus is him not knowing who he is, not accepting yet that Jesus is his savior. You, you nailed it with um, John 13 and the, 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 uh, the foot washing, that, that Peter is still confused about what it means that Jesus is his Lord and master, that first Jesus must serve him. He must cleanse him. He, he must declare him to be holy before Peter will have the strength to be able to stand up and say, yes, I am this man's disciple. Mm, yeah. And I, I mean, to again, just to think forward into the, the narrative, as we know what's going to happen, not to lose too much of the tension now, but I do think you see Peter be brought to these to these this true knowledge this true faith but one one thing that that at least comes to my mind thinking about how peter's story continues past here thinking all the way to his epistles you know you've been mentioning how over and over again we hear first simon peter but then just peter just rock well by the time you get to say his first epistle and you get to chapter 2 and and peter's talking about living stones he talks about jesus as the chief cornerstone I mean, so it, it does seem right. that that this yes. experience of Peter's utter failure here in the face of temptation, but then his restoration by the mercy of Christ, that then does bring him to this, this true faith and who he is as a disciple of Jesus that enables him then to proclaim that mercy and grace to others such that it's not about them at all, but it's about what Jesus has done for them. It's about, do you have a solid cornerstone? And as I was mentioning to you before the... Uh... Bible study, uh, we had a car run into our house and demolish a good portion of our foundation. And as a result, the, the house is starting to, to, to kiss the ground, so to speak. So we had to put in temporary walls to keep the house from, from collapsing. If you don't have a cornerstone on which everything can rest, um, then, then you're not able to really do anything. Um, and the other thing with the cornerstone is sometimes it's below ground. Um, you may not even necessarily see it, but what you do see is the stability of the building. So this whole idea of um, identity, of knowing who you are and whose you are, is what then enables you to do the following. Yeah. Mm. And um, I I think this goes also to the, the catechism. Um, I'm reminded all the time of the Luther's catechism's explanation of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Well, well, we pray, lead us not into temptation. And what is the greatest temptation we face? Luther says it's false belief and despair. So the temptation is not um, using bad words in traffic or um, taking something that isn't yours. Those are small temptations, but they come out of the bigger one that you forget whose you are and what, what Christ has done to redeem you and claim you. And so if you lose that, if you're tempted to forget that, if you're tempted to be Peter, say, I am not this man's disciple, all the other stuff is going to happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know that that what you point out from Luther's explanation to the sixth petition has always stood out to me, and I, I think you certainly see that within John eighteen, that the the primary temptation is into this false belief, and then from from there into despair, perhaps, right. and that is where. And again, I know we're we're stopping here with the account of Peter, but that would have been the temptation for Peter after this would have been to fall into despair, and certainly that is where the devil would have attempted to drag Peter. By the grace of God, Jesus brings him back. He restores him, uh, lest he do fall into despair. But yeah, the the false belief here that we see from from Peter that is the the greatest temptation of all of us, and certainly we should pray the Lord's prayer lest we fall into that false belief. When we have, when we find ourselves with Peter, and this goes back to that that battle between life and death that you brought up. Well, where where do we fall in that battle? It's easy for us to to see, you know, how, how, okay, well, we're on the right side. Well, here, Peter thought he was on the right side, but he's fallen now into that false belief that, well, maybe let's, let's go back to that a little bit. This is just, as we were talking here, go back to that. How does this, how does this play into that battle between life and death and, and our, I think you use the word complicity within this as to what's happening to Jesus. How do we see ourselves? And again, how do we see it in the mercy of, of Christ for us when we fall the way of Peter? I think the great temptation for us always is to say, well, I, I would never have done that. Um, those of us who've studied history and seen some of the horrific events of history, um, you read these things and say, well, surely I would never have done that. I wouldn't have been complicit in it. Um, and yet by, by reminding everyone in the middle of Jesus's passion that the rock fell complicit, <laughs> that the rock fell away uh, and said he wasn't a disciple, um, puts us all in the place where Paul suggests we should be in his epistles, where he says, take, take heed when you're sure that you're standing lest you fall, which of course is where Augustine gets the famous pride gums before the fall statement. Um, when we begin to have pride in ourselves, when our boasting is in ourselves, that's when we are being tempted by the devil. And so Peter falls here because he is all about who he is and what he can do uh, for his own situation. Um, I think that's why, you know, a lot of us in the West struggle with Christianity, which is strange because it's, we have deep Christian roots, but, but Christianity is all about needing to lean on the strength of another for our, identi our identity. And we don't like that. Um, we're pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps kind of people. Um, I don't need anybody. I can hitch my wagon to a bunch of oxen and take them out west and build a life for myself. And yet here is Christianity saying, first, you must build on someone else. Um, first, you must derive your identity from somebody else. And only then will you have security so that when the wagon train falls apart or when your bank collapses or when you lose your job or when that spouse that you thought everything was great with comes to you and says, I want a divorce. Um, if you've only built on yourself, you will watch everything crumble. But if your life is on a foundation that's solid, which is God's love for you and his redemption of you in Christ, then, then you're not building on yourself. You already are on a solid foundation from which you can begin to hold forth against the storms. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, too. This is the, the parable of the, uh, the wise man and the foolish man. So Peter is the foolish man here. And later, he's going to have to be 
um, the wise man. And if this could happen to Peter, then surely it could happen to any of us. Nobody should be able to read the Passion and say, well, I wouldn't have done that <laughs> if Peter did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So all of us should look to Christ as our solid foundation. So let's let's take a look at how he shows himself to be the solid foundation. As we've said, within the middle of Peter's temptation, within his trial, you have at least the beginning of Jesus' trial. This is the part of his trial that happens before the high priest in verses 19 to 24. And we we get some some conversation back and forth here from Jesus that we don't get in the Synoptic Gospels. So how does in his trial, how does Jesus show himself to be that solid rock that we need? What do we see in those those middle verses, 19 to 24? Well, he once again reiterates that he is not taught in secret. Um, he doesn't have a, a secret lodge where he gets people together. <laughs> they discuss things that the rest of the world isn't allowed to know. He has gone to teach where any good rabbi would go. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. Um, then in verse 21, he turns it around again and says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Jesus is giving a chance here. And this maybe this is why this passage is also in between Peter's denials. Um, do you want to admit openly that he has claimed that he is the Christ or not? Because to say that you have heard Jesus proclaim himself to be the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, is also to confess faith to a certain extent. It's really hard to say that and then say, but I don't believe it. Yeah. It, it really is. Um and of course, the response to this is not, okay, well, Peter's out in the courtyard. Let's call him in and ask him what, <laughs> what you said. No, there's an officer who struck, strikes Jesus with his hand and says, is that how you answer the high priest? Um, what? Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, just as, as just listening to you in the way that this again is progresses here in John, you know, I've, I've been referring to this as Jesus' trial, and and it is because the high priest is questioning Jesus here. But at the same time, the way that Jesus, you know, turns it around, really starts to put the high priest and those there on trial, just like Peter. And it's almost, and I'm I'm kind of thinking forward into what we'll look at in the next text where Jesus is before Pilate. And and almost Pilate starts to be on trial a little bit here. You know, I mean, just thinking exactly. through the, the various people. Yeah. So it's almost like like it, the the way John records it ends up being less about the trial of Jesus and more about again that identity question coming back up, not only for Peter but for the high priest and his soldiers, and again in tomorrow's text for Pilate. How how will these people see themselves in relation to Jesus? And of course in the context of the passion, they will all fail. They will all give the wrong answer. And and yet throughout Jesus remains steadfast. The one who goes to his cross, which in John's gospel is his glory, the place where he's going to win salvation. As you said from the outset, the crucifixion is not going to be an accident. This is where Jesus has been going all along. So that right. again, by the time we all get there and, and see it, then that becomes the moment like, oh, this is, this is where I do need to find my identity is in the crucified one. But yeah, just, just I mean, the way that John's got this here in, in chapter 18, it's like, boy, the one who's on trial here really is the high priest, and he once again fails to confess the truth about Jesus. It, that question of identity, it seems, keeps coming back up. 
this is true of, of all of the passion narratives, and it's something that we miss because we call it the trial of Jesus. We are the ones on trial. Humanity is on trial. Um, and it's made abundantly clear in John. Peter is on trial. The high priest is on trial. Pilate's on trial, right? Uh, the crowds are on trial. One of the ways we bring this out um, at, in our worship services is on Passion Sunday, we do the palms uh, and all the, the the entry into the church, but we do the entire Passion narrative and we do it um, interactively. So I will have um, three other people help me with playing the big speaking roles but it's the congregation that plays the disciples and the crowds. And I've always had people afterwards say how insightful that was for them to have them go from saying, you know, where shall we go to prepare the feast for you to crucify him, crucify him. Um, and to hear those words come out of your own mouth and cause that yeah. to make you reflect on who is on trial here. Um, yeah. it really is us and we failed. And instead of God saying, well, that, that proves that you are not worth saving in that very act, he actually saves us. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking the same thing uh, to it. And, and I've often done it on good Friday on good Friday in, in the congregations that I've served, we've, we've often used John's the passion according to St. John on good Friday. And we, we break it up into like seven parts and we sing stanzas of Oh sacred head now wounded in between, yeah. but we do the same thing where, where we give certain words to the congregation to say, and those words, I am not are among them. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, to, to hear those own words from your lips is, is very striking and is a reminder of the ways that, that we all have failed when put on trial in this way. But at the same time, then, to hear the words of Christ and his steadfastness in the midst of all this is a great comfort. And we've seen this all along in John's gospel, how Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. And he goes there willingly. He goes there on purpose. As he says in, in chapter 10, his life is not taken away from him. He lays it down of his own accord so that he may take it back up again. And this provides that great comfort to us when we are the ones saying, I am not denying Jesus by not recognizing our identity and relationship to him. He stays there as the, as the true rock, as the one who, on whom we build our, our faith because he succeeded. He remained steadfast where we sinners did not. And that's the, again, with the way that John has recorded this for us. And really with giving us you know, more words of Jesus here than we, we get in the synoptics and seeing the way that ultimately we're the ones on trial, yet he remains steadfast, that shows him to be the rock of our faith all the more. We have just under three minutes here, Pastor. Uh, help us to, to wrap things up this morning. Show us again the good news that is ours from this part of the Passion according to St. John. It's, it's one of those passages where if this was the gospel reading for Sunday, um, sometimes when I come to the end of a passage like this and say, this is the gospel of the Lord, there's, there's almost an interior smile in me <laughs> because right. it, it does seem rather bleak. Um, in some ways, the, the good news comes before and after uh, this passage. And yet, I, I think if you're going to look for the gospel, look for the announcement of good news, it does come in that middle section in the questioning of the high priest, um, that Jesus doesn't deny anything he said. He remains faithful because he is the word. Um, he's spoken openly. He doesn't do anything in secret. 
and he's made it so that we can know what he has said and repeat it back. So it's not just the Jews who were there in the synagogues and in the temple who can speak to the world what Jesus has spoken. We can do that too. And he's provided that through the gospels. Um, and I think, again, the fact that Jesus answers the strike from the officer, not by striking him back, um, not by you know spitting in his face, all the things we would see in a Hollywood movie, but rather simply quietly saying, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And that that's precisely how God deals with sinners. Um, that, that he comes and just asks the question, um, why are you so mad at me? Why, why, why the anger? Um, have, has anything that I've said been wrong? If it's wrong, testify to how it's wrong. But if it's right, why are you angry? Um, and if God were like us, uh, no doubt he would just, you know, press the big red button on the desk and just nuke everyone. But instead, Jesus says, um, I'm going to be faithful to myself as Savior and simply ask the questions. Um, I've come to, to be bear witness to the truth. That's what I'm here to do. And um, even for Peter, there's hope later on. Um, we can go from being, I am not to feed my sheep. Yeah. Pastor, Pastor Charles St. Ange serves through the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He is missionary pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He has been helping us today to study John chapter 18, verses 15 to 27. Pastor St. Ange, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Have a blessed day. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.